Hello, this is Shonda Smith-Baker from the Minneapolis Foundation, where I am the Senior Vice President of Impact and the host of Conversations with Shonda. On today's podcast, we welcome Patrick Troska, the Executive Director at the Jay and Rose Phillips Family Foundation of Minnesota. Well, thank you for being a guest. Of course. You're very welcome. So, Patrick, tell us a little bit about you. What do you want to know? I want to know how... I can start at the beginning or um, I can start at the Well, end. let's see. We're about the same age, so the beginning might be too far back. <laughs> um, but no, really, in terms of the beginning of your career journey, like just how did you how did you get into this work and um, let our audience just, just get a sense of who you are? Sure. I'll give you the abridged version of my life story. Okay. I actually grew up on a farm in northern Minnesota, so I'm a farm kid a hog farm and a wheat farm. Uh, my dad farmed- Wait, hogs and wheat? Hogs and grain. Okay. So wheat was the primary, wheat and alfalfa. Okay. Yeah, so <clears throat> I've done many things in my life that I don't really want to talk about because of, like, because of growing up on a farm. But that aside, but my dad and, and my mom, they farmed 1,200 acres, had eight kids, so I'm the middle of eight kids. And I knew from a very early point in my life that I did not want to farm, nor did I want to be out in rural Minnesota. I always thought of myself, even at the youngest age, as a city kid. So I knew when I graduated from high school I was going to be gone, and I pretty much left. Went back to visit parents, but that was really about it. I've never gone back for any other reason. I went to a small Catholic college, St. John's University, studied theology and social work, worked with kids for about 10 years of my life, um, I went back to grad school and got my master's in leadership at Augsburg College. And I knew at that point it was time for a career change. And I got a job working for Minnesota Children's Museum as the director of volunteer services at the same time that they were moving into downtown St. Paul. Hmm. So I got a chance to build this program from scratch, which was really kind of exciting, but it was an exhausting sort of burnout job because it was a department of one doing a pretty significant job. I was there about three years, and then I got a job working for United Way. But I left there three years later because I got a call from a headhunter about a job at the General's Phillips Family Foundation. They were hiring a program officer, the very first one. So I applied, I met with the headhunter, had a nice connection, got a chance to meet Pat Cummings, who was the executive director. We clicked, and she hired me. And that was 19 years ago. 19 years ago. 19 years ago. In fact, it was June of 2000 when I had my first interview. Oh, it wow. actually started in October, so it was a long process. But So I got, I got into the field at a time when it was pretty traditional. I mean, family philanthropy was all about um, families controlling where money went. And so when they put money into the what I would like to say is a public trust, because it really is in the public trust, it's held without tax. Um, the family still has the opportunity to, to control where that money ends up. Um, there's no real community voice. And that happened, that's, that was the sort of tradition of family philanthropy for a long time. And I stayed with the job, partly because I liked the work and I liked the people I was working with, and I liked the family. And in 2011, a big shift happened at our foundation Long story short, um, family, family generations had been in other parts of the country for a long time. And actually it had, been, had, had access to discretionary funds at the foundation. And they decided 
that they really needed to build a presence with that foundation in their own community. Mm -hmm. So we ended up splitting the foundation into three foundations. One went to California, one went to Colorado, and one stayed here, all equal-sized, but all without any accountability or um, expectation of work together. So they all, we all operate very, very, very differently. So at that time, I was, I was a program officer, and the trustees decided that they liked me well enough to hire me as the executive director. So I took that job, and it was a time, again, when things were in big transition. They mm -hmm. really wanted us to think differently about philanthropy at that point. They said, I want you to get out from behind your desks, get out in the community, get to know people, get to know the community, and bring good ideas back. Don't go to the community and say, here's what you need. Go and, and bring those ideas back. Mm -hmm. So it was a big shift for us. We were very used to getting proposals, reading proposals, you know, the sort of traditional philanthropic approach. And now we were actually invested in building relationships. So we moved from what I like to describe as a very transactional foundation to a very relational foundation. And what do you think, Patrick, um, was the catalyst for that? I think it... <clears throat> You know, it's a really good question. I've never really asked them that question, but I think in part it came out of the family's roots as an entrepreneurial family. Mm -hmm. So they were very used to um, looking for big ideas and then growing those big ideas, sort of, you know, making those big ideas explode. And so I, I think for them it was, let's let's try that on for size. Does, does working in a more entrepreneurial approach really make sense? Yeah. And can we produce better results? Because I think they looked at the whole approach and said, we've been doing this for, we've been around for 75 years. So we've been doing it for about 70 years at that point. And, you know, there were things they could point to and say, yes, this was an impact that we had, or this was a, a, an impact we had. But they didn't, they couldn't collectively say, here's been our impact. And I think they were looking for something bigger at that point. Yeah. You know, when I think about, so I started at Pillsbury United Communities in 2000. Mm. Right. And I left there in 2017. Okay. So we're about on the same timeline <laughs> yeah, in different yeah. ways. Yeah. So 17 yeah. years there. Um, when I talk with with my predecessor, who I greatly admire, um, Tony Wagner, mm -hmm. he talks a lot about how philanthropy and the work had changed so much mm -hmm. from being uh, more maybe high trust, relational in, in many respects. Mm -hmm. And that um, foundations used to fund organizations that they knew would get the work done and leaders they knew they would get right, the work done. Right. And then we went to kind of this impact measurement, mm -hmm. um, you know, narrowing. <laughs> you know, he often talks about like, why can't we just fund youth workers? Like there used to be yeah, a time where we yeah. would pay people to go out and just work uh -huh. with youth and get uh -huh. them connected. Uh -huh. And now the youth have to come in the building yeah. and we have, we've, we've professionalized it to the point Mm -hmm. that um, we're, we've, we're starting to maybe stamp out some of the effectiveness of the work. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm really curious, like in your time, in that 17 years, like, I mean, do you feel like you're coming full circle back to being more relational or do you feel like you're, do you feel like you're going back to your future or <laughs> is it? Well, I, in, in some respects, I think we're, we're, we're creating it all new again. Hmm. Um, and maybe it's going back to the roots of what philanthropy is, which, you know, love of humankind. Um, but, I don't see us going back, at least our foundation, I can't talk for the field as a whole, but I don't see us going back to that very rigid, traditional way of doing, of, of, of getting those resources out into the community. It's, it's to your point, it's stifling, it's, it's not very creative, it doesn't really go where the, the, wor the work is really needed. I mean, I think about what Edgar says in Decolonizing Wealth about money being medicine, that 
it has to go where the herd is the greatest. And if it's not going there, then it's not it's not working as medicine. And I, you know, since I've read the book and since I've heard him talk and, and had a chance to have a conversation with him, I've really been sort of ruminating on that idea of money as medicine. How can money be medicine? And how do we as a foundation use money to repair where damage is, mm-hmm. to be, you know, a, a force in that respect and not a force on our own. It certainly is about how do we go into community, build those relationships, build trust, you know, change happens at the speed of trust. And how do we build that trust so that that money can be medicine, so that it's not just some artificial kind of, I don't know, the remedy that in fact isn't producing the result that the community wants nor yeah. that the community needs. Yeah. So I imagine that um, as the foundation has evolved in that time period, you have as well. Mm-hmm. And we've, we've talked before um, briefly about your own journey of understanding power and privilege and um, I guess the, the position that you hold within that. So there's the position that you have personally and then the position that you hold within your, your foundation. What is your own kind of evolution and understanding around how power and privilege sure. work? How has that informed your work? You know, it's interesting when we made the decision back in 2015, 2016, that we were going to move our grant making work to the north side. And that was going to be our focus. We took a look at each other on staff. There are four of us. And, you know, we're an all white staff. And we said, how can we be effective on the north side if we, in fact, don't reflect what the north side looks like, what the experience of the north side has been? And so we started to do some deep work ourselves. We did the intercultural development inventory and some other kinds of trainings and and explorations. We've been reading and talking and sort of having our own journey. And I remember early on in the process thinking to myself that I could actually do that kind of work at work and then go home to my life. Mm -hmm. That I I could separate those two realities, that I could just understand it on a professional level. But then there was my personal life and that didn't have anything to do with my personal, my professional life. And it became clear pretty quickly that those two things can't be separated. So it was a it was an important part of my journey to understand that I had personal work to do and I could only do the professional work well if I did the personal work. Mm-hmm. Because this work is incredibly personal. If you're going to build relationships, it's incredibly personal. I remember having a conversation with um, uh, Rapa Maka from Nexus mm-hmm. Community Partners at one point. And he said to me, he said, Patrick, if you if you can't come into this community and be vulnerable, you aren't ready to come into this community. Don't come. We won't. We don't want you. We don't need you. This community won't accept you. So, you know, it was about engaging and understanding my own privilege, where I've come from. I share the story about coming from a farm, sort of these very, um, these agrarian roots of mine, these very earthy roots of mine, um, because I have to understand my own story, where I come from, who I am. And, and what that story is, how I've evolved in that story, with how that story has shaped me over time. So that was really our journey as a staff, was to spend time understanding our own story, understanding what privilege looks like, understanding you know, what, our own, um, what our own biases are when we show up in community, especially in philanthropy, how those biases show up even when they, you don't intend them to show up, mm-hmm. in the way you ask questions, in the way you relate. Um, the, the biggest lesson I got early on was listening 
it's important to listen and then listen again and then listen again. And that speaking, because foundation folks are so used to speaking. That's what we do. We talk and everybody listens. It's like E.F. Hutton. When we talk, everybody <laughs> listens. And, and, and unintentionally, when we speak, we're telling people what we want. And so then they respond in kind. Mm -hmm. And what I found out really early, just a little side note, what I found really early is that when we change the rules on, on, on nonprofits, when we said, here's what we want, and it was outside of the norm of what we'd been asking for before, they didn't know how to respond to us. Yeah. We have conditioned them so well to know how to hear for those particular uh, clues, those particular phrases, and then respond in kind so that we feel like they're listening to us. There's and, a rippling and, and, effect of that, you know. So um, in my time at Pillsbury, that was one of the things that, you know, where philanthropy and, and government can be very prescriptive. Mm -hmm. Um, and they could say, this is exactly how I want you to deliver this mm -hmm. program. And mm -hmm. I want you to have so mm -hmm. many um, hours of reading mm -hmm. with this type of person yeah. and this type yeah, of yeah, room and yeah. setting um, that when I would go to um, the staff and say, hey, you know, there's an issue that we're experiencing. What do you think? And their response would be, well, our contract says, our proposal <laughs> yeah, says, yeah, and yeah. I would, no, no, no. I want to know what you think. Right, You're from right, the community. Tell right, me what you right, think. Right, right. And they're like, well, you know, well, when I met with my contractor, I, I mean, it took me a while to realize that what happens to the social sector if we become so prescriptive that no one is bringing in their own assets and their own mm -hmm. worldview and their own experience to, mm -hmm. that that essentially will allow us to be able to begin to crack the nut on yeah. addressing some of the disparities. That yeah, we have. for sure. Well, and we we we. So one of the experiences that was interesting for us was being in a, a, a gathering of um, community folks. And we had spent months having one-on-one -on -one and small group conversations with any number of folks who would talk to us. You know, small business owners, school teachers, parents, everybody in the community that would actually sit down and have a conversation. Then we gathered a group of folks together in a design session. and. I remember uh, a couple of the of the the people that were in the session were very clear with us that they didn't trust us. They had no reason to trust us. Their their experience would be that, and they they laid it out. Here's what we expect you're going to do. It's a you know you're going to listen. You're going to take away our ideas. You're going to do your own thing. I mean it was a it was just a, the 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 process that they'd been through a thousand times before, and they expected it again. And so you know we had to sit there and listen to them. And then the difference was we came back the next day and we listened again. And then we came back the next day and we listened again. And that process of listening slowly broke down those th that distrust. And now some of those folks are some of our greatest supporters mm -hmm. because we're, we're, we try to constantly be in conversation with folks around listening to them. Yeah. You know, understanding that community has the everything it needs yeah um, and how do you help to lift that up mm -hmm. you know our job is not to go in there and give them anything our goal is to help lift that up help mm -hmm. them lift it up for themselves yeah. it's it's so it, it, but that was the difference I think we have we have people people's experience tells them what's going to happen next the past is prologue mm -hmm. and especially in the social sector when it comes to philanthropy we have trained them well to respond to us a particular way and that's how they respond to us. And then they know what the game is. They know what's gonna happen next. Mm -hmm. And so to your point, you know, the fact that folks said to us, we don't trust you, we expect that these are the things that are gonna happen, was not, 
it, it, we shouldn't have been um, um, surprised by that because yeah. that's been the way the process has worked. So we've tried to be, we try to break that down. And it's not about our own ideas. It's about what are the ideas that you want for your community and how do we support those ideas with sure. resources, technical assistance, whatever you need, you tell us. and. We'll see what we can do to make it happen, even if it means going out and trying to sell it to the Minneapolis Foundation, the McKnight <laughs> Foundation, or some other foundation right. that should come along for the ride. Sure. So, you know, with any great kind of self-discovery, mm -hmm. you, you hit a wall, mm -hmm. right? Like there's a point that you realize something, right? You realize a component of yourself or you realize that you've got a road ahead of you that mm -hmm. maybe you didn't recognize. Mm -hmm. Did you hit any walls in your own discover discovery of, of self? You know, and if so, what did that look like? You know, I I guess I've never looked at it as a wall that I hit, but I mm -hmm. think it 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 was just exhausting. Mm -hmm. And it was it was it seemed like every time I turned around, whether it was in a personal relationship, something I was watching on TV, something I was reading, an interaction at the gym or someplace, it was all sort of rich with this this new set of eyes and seeing it differently, seeing people's experience differently. And it just got to be really exhausting to constantly be aware of your surroundings, aware of my own behavior, aware of how I was thinking, aware of how, of how I was feeling. And the it, it, what was important for me when I got to those moments of being so exhausted, I just wanted to go run away and hide. Mm -hmm. And because I had privilege, I could do that. I mean, I could have taken my toys and walked away. I mean, that was the reality. but. We had made an agreement as a staff that we were going to sit through those experiences together mm -hmm. so we could bring that back to each other and have those conversations about what we were feeling, what we were thinking, what was what we were experiencing so we could push through those those moments of exhaustion or to your mm -hmm. point, those walls that we right. that we hit. But and part of that was um, my own understanding that, you know, for many communities, they live in exhaustion all the time. Mm -hmm. They don't have the, they don't have the privilege or the ability to walk away from those. So why should I? So you know, making myself stay in that experience to the degree I could, still understanding that I can walk away, and I did there are times when I can just let it go and go home and watch a movie or whatever and not worry about it. But yeah. Do you define yourself either as being a partner with community or an ally? Like, do you have language for how you who you think you are in the work? I really don't, in part because I'm so conscious of jargon. Yeah. And the fact that jargon is, is um, it's code. I mean, it's it's just laden with all kinds of, of, of definitions that aren't helpful. So I, I, we use partners, we use allies, we use all those terms, and we haven't really landed on anything as a foundation. And I don't, I mean, I just, I think about just being in the work. I don't think about what I what I bring necessarily from that that part of the relationship, and maybe I should, maybe I should spend more time on that, but I don't. I, I again, I I'm, I'm one of the one of the things that we decided to do just a couple of weeks ago um, as we redesigned our website is to try and get rid of all the jargon we can, mm -hmm. which is going to be really hard. I mean, in philanthropy, we are loaded with jargon. We have so many phrases and terms we use just loosely, like everybody understands them. And we're committed to try and get rid of as much jargon and to talk in real language to the degree we can. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what it'll end up being. We'll call them partners, grant, you know, they, they've been grantees for right. years. And maybe it's partners, maybe it's allies, maybe it's nothing. I don't know. I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. Mm -hmm. So um, the foundation decided to relocate to North Minneapolis. 
And I know you've invested um, your your grant making uh, resources there and just a tremendous amount of time in terms mm -hmm. of building relationships. Mm -hmm. What have you learned the most about North Minneapolis? Well, you know, we don't we aren't in North Minneapolis yet. Yep. We're still we're still trying to get that building done. And, and what, <laughs> what what's happening with that? Um, <clears throat> well, we uh, so it's it, for the listeners. It's a three way partnership. Mm -hmm. between ourselves and two small businesses on the north side who have made a commitment to uh, have an equal partnership to redevelop and um, build onto the existing building. And then all three of us will locate there with a, a small amount of, of additional lease space available in the building. It's about a $7 million-ish project. And the reality is $7 million on a building the city's going to sell for a buck means that it's going to be underwater from the very beginning. There's no way unless we're able to raise $7 million, and that's just not the way we're doing this. We're not a nonprofit. It's a for-profit entity. So we're not going out and trying to raise grant money. So we're trying to figure out how we can be as creative um, financing as we can, as we can, and that's mm -hmm. where we're at. We're in the point of finalizing our financing stack and then hoping, hoping we can close in August and break ground in the early late summer, early fall. That's the plan. The foundation is going to be, at this point, um, committing somewhere in the area of $1.5 million. And I think we'll, what will be a forgivable loan, um, there will be some terms we'll establish over 10 years that, that will require to be met in order to get the forgiveness on the loan. But that's part of our commitment. Mm -hmm. You know, again, money is medicine. How do we put money where the hurt is the greatest? And if, if, this, if it requires the foundation to put in a larger infusion of cash because it is going to be underwater, then that's going to be the role we'll play. So that's where that's at. But, you know, to your question about what have we learned about Minneapolis, or great, uh, North Minneapolis, mm -hmm. I think the thing that surprised me the most, at least in the initial conversation, it's borne it's itself out over time, is how much people who live on the North Side love the North Side. You know, the, the, the external narrative is that people want to do better so they can get out. And what we heard from people over and over and over again, whether they work there, live there, recreate there, is they have a love for North Minneapolis. It's where their, their, their home is. It's where their church is, their school, their neighbors, their friends, their social network. North Minneapolis is what they love. And I think looking at the community through those eyes, through that lens, has been the greatest learning I think we've had, which has then made it easy to say, we're going to be there. We're going. We're committed to making sure we can do the best job we can. So we have actually then, as a foundation, shifted our narrative from talking about Northside um, in a d disparities or deficit mode to one around assets and opportunities. So how do we look at North Minneapolis's assets and the opportunities, and then take full advantage of those with the community? That's great. I'm I'm fifth generation on the North Side. Mm -hmm. um, I still live there. I'm from one of those families that have um, made a decision. Um, to stay, and it was an easy decision to make. Mm -hmm. um, it has nurtured me and nurtured my kids, and I'm definitely not uh, blind to some of the challenges, but I think my, my lens has always been, how do I, in my work, lift up the multiple narratives that exist within mm -hmm. one neighborhood? Mm -hmm. And I will often say that as a child growing up there and listening to everybody talk at North Minneapolis about how mm -hmm. bad it was and mm -hmm. how these kids are destined to jail or grave, yeah. um, as yeah. a regular conversation to yeah. have in front of children, yeah. 
Um, and me thinking, you know, oh my gosh, like, is this where I'm headed? Like, I mm -hmm. remember being very confused about what I felt like yeah. my experience actually was yeah. and how I saw people define it. Yeah. I think it's, it's, it's something that if I could ever solve that one thing, mm -hmm. right, in terms of mm -hmm. how we talk about communities and what we expect from communities, yeah. Yeah. it would certainly be uh, high on my priorities. Right, right. Um, so you, for white folks and a board <laughs> that I imagine is not diverse, all white. Okay. All white, so, all Jewish. All white, all Jewish, mm -hmm. deciding to locate in North Minneapolis and do mm -hmm. hard work and change language. Mm -hmm. How do you know you know enough to do that? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's pure ignorance. I don't know. Um, I, it's a really good question. I just, I think it goes back to that, that, what we talked about early, which is about building trust. So the more conversations and the more interactions that we have with folks on the north side whether it's again business owners or it's nonprofits or it's community leaders they're excited about our our, our decision to come to the north side um, partly because the decision to come there has been informed by that by that community we're not going to buy a building on our own we're not going to buy and own something that's ours it's going to be bought in uh, coordination with two other entities and the goal I didn't share this but the goal at the end of the forgivable loan is that they would the other two entities would take over and buy us out we would no longer be an owner so we wouldn't be an organization or an entity that comes in from the outside and owns so I think you know for us it feels like the right thing people have been very welcoming um, and we're excited. I we'll see when when things you know the shovels hit the ground and things start mm -hmm. to move there, how people respond. But for the most part, everything's been positive. Yeah, when um you know when we had the the conversation, and I know you came to around decolonizing wealth. Mm -hmm. One of the um, questions that was asked, or one of the things that were presented, was around measuring impact. Mm -hmm. And uh, the weaponization of, uh -huh. of measurement yes, and evaluation, yes, yes. and I'm wondering um, in in the work that you all are doing, and uh, as you're changing your language and your intentionality, mm -hmm. how is that informing the way that you will measure your success? Mm -hmm. How do, how do you mm -hmm. know when you're successful? I think what we're trying to do is again flip everything sort of on its head and be be community driven. So it isn't about us defining what success looks like. It's about the folks in the community defining what success looks like and then following that lead. You know, when you were talking earlier about, um, you know, just the evaluation and so forth and, and how things get done, I have such post-traumatic stress from my days at United Way because of logic <laughs> models. Because of, of logic models. I mean, when somebody brings up a logic model, I mean, I, I mean, I just it. I get a hive. I, I can't even stand it. I, in fact, when we hired the evaluation team that's working with us right now, I said to them, "We will not ever talk about logic models. Don't bring them up. They're not a part of this. We're not doing them because I, I think they're ridiculous. I don't mm -hmm. think that you, you get anywhere with this, mm -hmm. this very fabricated way of thinking about change. And in my mind, the, as we look at the work we're trying to do on the north side with the community. The, the folks in the community should be the ones to define what change looks like. And is, it, and is it in part, like? because I know part of my reaction to them was, number one, my my reaction in part, you know, I'm in philanthropy now, so I can mm -hmm. I can be a critic, mm -hmm. I guess, mm -hmm. but that um, philanthropy doesn't often pay for the type of evaluation mm -hmm. that it expects, right. Right. which I think is a, is right. a grand challenge. Right. Right. But I also um, know firsthand um, that 
the way that people move through um, kind of an economic pathway is mm -hmm. not a smooth right. or linear route. Mm -mm. So it is a bit fabricated, but, but mm -hmm. the reality is, is that it's a distance from how people actually right. advance. Right. Right. And how families work. Right. Well, it's, it's trying to apply a technological approach to how things happen to human beings. And those two things don't happen. This Widgets aren't, people are not widgets. Mm -hmm. And you can't just measure how a widget moves to how a person moves. People have their own unique histories and, and issues and, and assets that, that they bring to that, to that um, change effort. And so trying to measure that is, yeah, it, in the same way, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. I also think, in, in, you know, I asked in that conversation, one of the things that was mentioned was this idea that around evaluation is what, what are we really trying to measure and who are we trying to measure it for? Mm -hmm. So most of the time in philanthropy, those kinds of evaluations are really about the funder getting some information they think they need as opposed to what the, the actual mm -hmm. recipient, the grantee, the organization needs and, and wants mm -hmm. to measure. So in, in many ways that, I just think evaluation is just one more control mechanism that foundations put in place with nonprofits and with their grantees in order to control how the money gets used. It's, it's back again to, you know, families that put money in a foundation still get to control how that money gets used. Mm -hmm. And I just don't, I'm not a big, I'm not a big proponent of really deep evaluation efforts. I think there are roles to play for these large-scale sort of community-wide evaluations that maybe universities do or that government does or whatever, but individual foundations who think they can measure the impact of a grant they make to a large effort at an organization are fooling themselves. So look back to the community for what is the community looking for in change and how can the mm -hmm. community talk about that change in a, in a way that um, shows that that, that 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 change is happening. I, I yeah. just do you think evaluation could be used for good in in philanthropy? Do you think that it's just been used in the wrong way? But that if we were using it for learning and mm -hmm. and direction, it could be maybe deployed well, I, differently. Sure, I I I, th I think it'd be really helpful if if foundations engage themselves directly in the work with the organization and then participated in that evaluation collectively. But but too often it's this many steps back. So you've got an organization doing all the work, the, the foundation expecting this evaluation, and, and there's no real learning that happens even in the experience. It's only in the reading of whatever words get put on a page. Mm -hmm. So how can foundations get much more deeply involved in the work? And, and I don't mean you know getting in the way, because that can happen too. It can be this sort of savior or, or mm -hmm. complex, but I'm talking about how do you engage with folks so that you actually understand what they're doing, what's happening in the work, so you can be a part of understanding? And, and, and I think that's where the evaluation can come in. Mm -hmm. So yes, I think evaluation could be used for good, but I think we have to rethink how we're doing it now in order for that to happen. Sure. Yeah. I, haven't spent, I honestly haven't spent a lot of time talking about the, my own journey around racial equity and, and privilege. So I'm not sure exactly how to frame it always and talk about it. So. Well, I think that that's... Because it's pretty new still. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I guess part of the reason why I asked you about your journey and if you hit a wall is because I feel like I've hit several walls mm -hmm. in my work. Mm -hmm. And um, they've been for different reasons. Yeah. You know, one, I think um, at 
at Pillsbury, I had moments of kind of whatever they're saying, can I see the forest through the trees? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. am I yeah. so close? Right. right. Because I live in North and because I'm raising kids and like, how do I look at, mm-hmm. at how I impact and develop, deliver programs for um, education when my kids are all in different schools and I'm ready to like, mm-hmm. go yeah. ballistic, right. On, on how I think that they're being treated in, in different school settings. Um, and so there was a point where, it's almost like I'm so close to it. What do I need to understand or mm-hmm. learn differently mm-hmm. about about this? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. The, the one of the things that I have reflected on <clears throat> a lot is when you when you're the executive director or the the leader of a family foundation and you're not a member of that family, I spend so much of my time acting as proxy for this family. So I sometimes feel like, how much of myself do I lose? Of myself, do I lose when I'm constantly acting as proxy for them? Mm-hmm. Do you do you know the answer to that? I don't know the answer to that because I've been doing this work so long that I'm not sure what stepping back would would reveal. Mm-hmm. Honestly, one of the interesting things um, in a conversation that we had with with Edgar around decolonizing wealth, and we had a panel, and uh, it was a panel of of Native American women. Mm-hmm. And they were expressing um, how they show up to work every day. Mm-hmm. And I asked a question of the audience and of them and said, what percentage do you think of yourself gets to show up to work every day? Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. particularly if you're from mm-hmm. a community, right? And you have yeah. a different point of view. And yeah. if you're the one or the only or right. one of few, right. oftentimes that lived experience mm-hmm. that um, does not get equal value at a right. table, right? Right. right? right. And um, one of them said, it really just depends. Yesterday, 20%. Hmm. Today, I'm probably at 80. Hmm. Some days it goes from 20% and then I can walk into a colleague's office and um, we can sing a song or we can say (laughs) a prayer and I can feel 100% like I'm me in this moment. Um, In that conversation, I I did think, because as a person of color, we often think about what, what we have to kind of Mm-hmm. Um, temper to be able to yeah. navigate yeah. right the work, which is, is a, a very difficult burden, mm-hmm. by the way, to carry. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I, I don't know what it means for someone in the white community, or just how you just yeah, explained I, it. Well, especially when you're going to when, when it's an overused statement, but when you suddenly get woke, when mm-hmm. you start to understand or see the world differently than you have through a privileged lens in the past. Yeah, I think it's. Mm-hmm. It can be really, really difficult. So you're a woke farm boy. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, well and, and, and let me tell you a quick story that, okay. that in some respects will highlight what you just described. So okay. I worked at United Way for three years, and I was there during the peak of the Boy Scouts Oh, goodness, stuff. I remember this. Yeah. For those who don't know, this is the Boy Scouts have had this policy about no gay scouts, no gay scout leaders. Um and yet the United Way had a policy that you couldn't discriminate. It was an all-inclusive policy and everybody had to sign it. And they, but, you know, but Boy Scouts still got their six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars or maybe it was more like one and a half million, I don't even remember anymore. They got a lot of money every year despite not being able to sign that pledge because they said, well, National's working on changing the policy, so stay with us. And, and so <clears throat> um, I, St. Paul United Way did community-led panels. So community uh, representatives would review proposals and make recommendations to the board about what should get funded and at what level based on a set of criteria and, 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 and ranking that 
was established by United Way. So one of my panels had Boy Scouts in it, and that panel rated the Boy Scouts the last one. Out of seven, they were number seven, which according to the rules of the, the process said that the Boy Scouts would get an X percent cut in their funding for the next year. Well, when you're getting a million dollars and you're getting a 20% cut, that's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. When you're getting 50000 you're getting a 20% cut. It's not as much money. Well, so that was the recommendation that went forward. And um, my boss was livid with me. And she was like, you didn't control your panel. You did not direct them correctly. You blah, blah, blah. blah. Yeah. So she and, the, and the, the CEO at the time went home and they changed all the recommendations on United Way gave Boy Scouts more. They got a cut, but it was less because her, her, her rationale was that's too much money. And I said, but it's based on percentages. That's the rule. And mm-hmm. anyway, so later when I quit, which was <laughs> like a year later or something, and I left to take this job, one of the, um, one of the, uh, the vice presidents came into my office and said to me, um, I suppose you think we should have defunded the Boy Scouts. And I said, that was never my position. See, no one pays attention. I said, it was never my position. My position was always that the Boy Scouts get to set the rules. They get to decide what they want. They get their cake and they get to eat it too. Nobody holds them accountable. Why isn't United Way holding them accountable? I'm fine with them getting money as long as their accountability that they have to meet. They're not being held to that accountability. They get to make the rules. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I, I didn't share this earlier, but as a, as a kid growing up gay, and, and, and understanding who I was in that context, in this conversation about a, uh, um, uh, an organization that had this rule around gay people and then got to break those rules all the time to get this money from United Way, I felt like I was constantly having to shape shift sort of what I was saying, what I was feeling about that in that context, and then being misread by people. Mm-hmm. Well, because you're, start, you're, cause you're a gay guy. Yeah, you're exerting. You, you, yeah. You, you, yeah, you're exerting undue influence, and you believe a certain thing that you're, you're, that, you know, you're not expressing to us. And I'm like, no one's ever asked me. Mm-hmm. So I was, it, it was just a, that, I, that I year was it, not fun. No, but it, it was, was I felt fun. very, very proud of myself during that year because it was um, mm-hmm. the same year when, uh, I don't remember if this was 2000, I don't remember when it was, but that I. Um, it was 99. It was 99, 2000. Yeah. So um, I remember that because I started Pillsbury in 2000 and we had a Boy Scout troop Mm. at our location. Mm. And I remember the changes that were happening, but the dues still went to national and national still have the position. And so um, I was part of a group that actually did not allow for any of the Boy Scout Mm -hmm. troops to Mm -hmm. meet at the centers Mm -hmm. until that policy was changed. And um, I felt very mm-hmm. proud of that. That was a moment of leadership for me, <laughs> my young, my young. And I'm leadership. sure there are people who didn't didn't agree with you. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. for yeah. sure. Yeah, I, um, you know, in terms of, I guess there's this range of perspectives, and there's so much divisiveness in the world right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Do you think philanthropy has a role in in healing and repairing the divisiveness that we see? Well, there's a repair at so many different levels. You talk about the divisiveness, but I think about all of the the hurt Mm -hmm. that 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 needs repair. I mean, I I, you know this, Shonda. I mean, philanthropy is such a small percentage of all of the money that actually gets spent out in communities. When you look, when you add in government money, it's just such a small amount. So. Can philanthropy play a role in repairing, you know, that that kind of disharmony or divisiveness? I, I honestly don't know. I mm-hmm. think 
you know, as a as a found as a private foundation, we can't do any kind of lobbying or work directly with legislators. So we, we're held to a certain there's certain things we can't do, which makes that kind of work difficult. But you know, I I am more to be honest with you, I am more interested in how do we focus on the local level. Mm-hmm. I really believe that the local level is where the work is. And if you can if you can help, if you can be a part of change at the local level that creates sustainable economic development, economic growth, family health, schools that work and so forth in the local level, that's where the work is. And that's where the healing happens. I I I can't spend my time thinking about the larger um, okay. divisive divisiveness going on. I mean the political discourse that is so divisive right now is I don't know. I don't know. Honestly, know what's going to solve it. I think it's it's um, it's created so much pain and so much um, unnecessary division mm-hmm. that I don't know how I don't know how we come back from it. Um, okay. I'm that's fair. Maybe I'm cynical. I don't know. But no. I, I but because you're clear, my, right? Well, because my fo- yeah. my focus is about the local stuff. I can't. I'm not going to try. One of the one of the things that we've talked about at the foundation is how much can we, as a foundation, with the way we approach our work through that community voice, influence philanthropy at large. And I I've said so many times, I'm just maybe we can. That's not where my focus is. Mm-hmm. My focus is about how do we make the work do the best it possibly can with the community and make that change happen locally. And if that influences somebody more broadly, great. But I'm not going to – I don't have the time, the bandwidth, or the the energy to to try and make that happen at a larger level. I have to go back to my woke farm boy comment, though. Yeah. So (laughs) I think about that, and then I think about you being on the north side. So so the word belonging is is coming up for me. And so I I don't know if you feel like the people back where you grew up, you know, because now that you're woke and you're you're living this – work in this reality and understanding people's lives and neighborhoods in a different way that maybe they can never imagine. Mm-hmm. And then you're coming into the North side um, on Broadway mm-hmm. with the whole community that largely doesn't look like you. Mm-hmm. And so how are you navigating those spaces? Like, do you mm-hmm. feel like a sense of belonging? Yeah, it's, it's, I thought of, I've actually thought about that a lot. And, you know, again, growing up on, on a farm in northern Minnesota, going to a very small high school, I was bullied and tormented every day of my life. Mm-hmm. It was just the reality of, of where I grew up and who I was. And so that wasn't that when I left that experience, I I vowed never to go back to it, which I stated earlier. So I never did go back. And um my next experience going to St. John's University was incredibly transformative because I was finally in a place where there were people who were like me, people who um, listened to me, people who had the same kind of dreams as me. The monks and the nuns at St. John's and St. Ben's were unbelievably welcoming, warm, um, just wonderful human beings. So I just, I blossomed out. I just grew an, an enormous amount. But I think that early experience continues to shape who I am today, which is, I don't want to be that bully, that person who walks into a community and says, here's what you need. So for me, listening and and um, um, exploring our pains together is a part of that of the process. And that's who I that's the kind of uh, the kind of leader, the kind of philanthropist, the kind of foundation I want this I want to be. So 
So in some respects, being a woke farm boy, I, I, I've always had the sort of pained experience of, 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 being, of having that pain and going through the healing and coming to a, a new understanding of myself. But now I understand the world differently. And so bringing those two together has been a, a pretty natural marriage for me. So I don't even, honestly, I don't even find myself out of place. Like I'm in, these, I'm in these environments where I'm the only white guy or I'm the only guy, the only man. And I just, I don't find myself uncomfortable. Like I think I may have been 20 years ago or even 10 years ago for that matter. Mm -hmm. Just because that past experience has shaped and helped form who I am today and also how I try and approach the work. Right. So, you know, I can't have you be part of a conversation where mm -hmm. we don't talk about village trust. Uh huh. So this just seems like when you talk about it, your face like mm -hmm. lights up. Mm -hmm. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about what village trust is and mm -hmm. how it how it came sure. about? Sure. So back in 2016, yeah, 2016, a group of activists came together and they came to the foundation with this idea about opening up a credit union that would be black led. And it came out of the, the killing of Philando Castile. And they came together as a group of folks and said, what can we do that um, as an act of resistance against a system that oppresses us? And you know, they were talking about the, the folks who shut down freeways and the people who use their bodies as shields against that kind of, of hatred and discrimination. And they said, we want to do something different. And so they looked at it from an economic resistance lens. So they, they said, we need some kind of a financial institution. So they came to us and said, would you help us with this? What's funny about it is they came and their initial request was $57,000 because they had read on a website that it takes $57,000 to start a credit union. So they asked us for $57,000, which I knew was not enough money. So we really liked the idea because it was bold and it was entrepreneurial, going back to these, this entrepreneurial approach. So we, um, we spent about three months with them talking about what it is, what it would take, and, 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 and so forth, and then how the foundation could be best involved. At the end of that three months or so, we ended up providing about $430,000 in grant. Not 57,000, but 430,000. We also knew that that wasn't going to get the job done. But we wanted to make sure that the, the leaders of that, that idea could build the capacity quickly to make it happen quickly. The time of spending six, seven, eight years of process to get somewhere it just wasn't, wasn't going to fly. It had to happen now, and the sooner the better. So we said to, to Malia Connolly, who was leading the charge, that you know, here's the resources. We really want you to spend your time building a team, figuring out what it is, and getting an application done. So they spent, and then, so they spent about a year doing that. Our trustees also said they wanted me to be a, a significant part of it. So I, um, I serve on the board. I serve as an advisor. I help with fundraising, and so for that, for the uh, the year of 2017, that's what they did. They built this team. They did that work and and figured out what exactly it was going to be. It was a what we tried to describe it as as a, a fail quickly process. If something wasn't going to work, admit it quickly and move on to the next thing. Don't try and make things work that don't work. So at the end of 2017, I think they had like $50,000 in the bank because they'd spent the majority of that money building a team and, and doing this work. And um, I remember the team saying to me, we don't need money. I'm like, should we all be looking for jobs? And I was like, I looked at them straight in the eye and I said, you have to trust me. We're going to raise the money. We're going to raise this money. This idea is too good and too important to not believe we can do this. So 
Malia Conley and I hit the road and started meeting with every foundation and every funder who had talked to us, and by the end of the year had raised over a million dollars. Um, and so now, we, uh, what Village um, hopefully will do is um, that we finish the charter. The charter application is like seconds away from being approved. We're waiting on the National Credit Union Administration to approve the insurance. Um, but we've heard that they're close mm -hmm. um, from the federal government. I'm not sure what close means. Um, but they, but the charter's almost um, done, um, identifying a physical location to actually open up a credit union on the north side. Should happen sometime this year. That's the plan. Um, and the goal from here now is to capitalize it. So it's it's... Malia likes to describe it as a community development credit union, which means that it will always have a community development component, which will require outside support. Okay. Um, the idea that fees and interest and other kinds of earnings could actually pay for operations over time is going to be a long process if it ever happens, in part because we're trying to we're trying to break through systems of of um, extraction. So you know whether extraction it's pay and unbanked communities. Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about right using using payday lenders and, and um, check cashing um, entities in order to get access to your money. So there's a significant amount of, of um, education that's going to be necessary in order to get folks banked and get this thing up and you know be as um, solid as it needs to be. We're, we've been told by regulators it takes about $30 million in assets to get to a place where you're starting to feel stable. So the goal is not only with individual members who will join, but also uh, other kinds of um, outside equity investments and so forth that get put into this to build that $30 million. But, okay. you know, we've made an ongoing commitment of $250,000 a year in operating support for Village, so it can continue to have what it needs. But operations are going to take a million, million and a half dollars a year to operate a facility, pay staff, you know, run a loan fund and other kinds of, you know, run the, the um, the technology necessary and so forth. And are they still taking pledges? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And where would um, someone find a pledge if they wanted to become uh, a member? Yep, you would go to villagefinancial.org, and there's information at the bottom of that page about um, becoming a, about pledging to become a member. As soon as Village gets its charter, it can actually now have members. So those pledged, pledged individuals will be converted, hopefully the majority of them, into members. And then from here on out, you'd be able to just become a member. There's no pledging anymore to okay. become a member. But village, villagefinancial.org is the website. Perfect. Yeah, it's a, so great, it's a great project. It is, and Malia is fantastic. She is quite Malia's, inspirational. Malia's a rock star. Um, and she's, I remember the, you know, <laughs> Yeah, I could tell lots of stories about times with Malia, but um, she's come a long way in, in just her own leadership development as well, which has been really exciting to watch. And she'll admit that as well. Um, there was a, an article written by Next City, I don't know mm -hmm. if you read it. I but, did. but, you know, we talk about the process of asking the city for money. Because <laughs> the first time around, she asked for so little. And I was like, Malia, you got to ask for more. And they're going to give you any more than you ask for. So you got to start big. Oh, gosh. So I remember asking Kresge Foundation for a million dollars. And I started giggling like, right <laughs> afterwards. I'm like, can I have a million dollars? And I just like busted out laughing, right? Yeah. Like it was well, so uncomfortable. I know. it's Well, it is uncomfortable to ask yeah. for money. And, it's, you know, especially in, you know, POC communities asking government and foundations for money. It's just, it's, mm -hmm. yeah, it's just, it, it, it so I just, but that story was she tells about sitting in the in Mayor Fry's office and then asking him for five hundred thousand dollars a year for five years, and then looking at me and my eyebrows raised like, "You go like that." Like, that was exactly the right thing. So she's 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 amazing, and and will continue to do amazing things. And this won't be the last thing she does, but mm -hmm. she's yeah, she's amazing. 
So I am insatiable um, when it comes to uh, kind of reading and my <laughs> level of curiosity. And yeah. so could you just, you know, do you have something you can share that you're reading or exploring, mm -hmm. a topic mm -hmm. you're exploring now that mm -hmm. you can share with me in the audience? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not as a voracious of a reader as Shonda is. Um, I, I always start every year thinking I want to read more, and then I don't read more. Oh. Or I read maybe a little more, but not as much as I want. So one of the books that I've just started reading um, that um, I'm, I'm well, it, it's in the sh in the shadow of statues by Mitch mm. Landrieu. Do you know this book? So Mitch Landrieu was the uh, the mayor of New Orleans, and um, he it's his journey of, of of realization around privilege and around the the fact that there were so many um, Confederate statues and, the, and them having to come down and why he wanted to journey, wanted to go through that journey to, to, to understand. So that's one I feel like he and I probably have some similar kinds of learning. I'm, I'm, I'm anxious to read the book for that. Um, he, by the way, is the one, he's the one white guy that I thought would jump into the presidential race that I could get excited about. And he didn't. And I don't think he's going to. But Did he talked about it. He talked about it early on, like a year ago. He was talking about maybe running. But he's not. So... I'm, I'm surprised and I wonder why. Maybe the field's too big. I so. don't know. Speaking of presidential runs, though, they're talking about reparations. I can't believe that's a topic. I know. I know. Well, you, you brought that up earlier. Yeah, but. yeah. They, they are. I don't know that they understand what it means. I don't think they do. But, yeah, they are. It's actually a, a word in the uh, in the vernacular, which is kind of exciting. <laughs> and so, when they realize what it means, <laughs> they'll, they'll, well, that'll yeah. be a day. Well, yeah. They, well, you like any government thing, it'll get watered down in the end if anything actually happens. The other thing that the other book that we just read. So as a staff, we do a book club. So we've been reading books. We um, we just finished reading a book called How to Kill a City by oh. Peter Markowitz. Moskowitz. Mm -hmm. um, have you heard of? Her? I have heard of it. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating. He does a, a he um he uses four cities as a case study for gentrification, and he talks about. Um, New Orleans, right after Hurricane Katrina. He talks about Detroit after the bankruptcy declaration. San Francisco at the beginning of the tech boom. And New York City before, when they had their huge financial crisis in the 80s when Donald Trump was buying up properties. Um, and what that has meant for what gentrification looks like and how the, the conditions are right at particular points in time for gentrification to happen. And as he describes all three of, or four of these um, examples, you can see how North Minneapolis is ripe for gentrification. Like every one of the systemic indicators is right there in front of us to pay attention to. So you can see it happening. So that was, that's been a really a great book to read. The other one that I'm, I'm, I'm looking at reading is The Liberty Amendments. Okay, I've not this heard book? of that one. This is a, written by a guy named Mark Lewis. And um, so The Liberty Amendments, it's, it's, it's a conservative thing. It's these amendments that would change the constitution if we were to have a, um, uh, a constitutional convention to change the constitution, these are the amendments that they want written in that would make it more conservative. So I just want to know what people are saying. It's I've heard it's a fascinating read because these amendments are kind of crazy, but yeah. not far but not far afield from what um, what we're currently what, seeing what I we're mean, currently seeing or where we're currently heading. Absolutely. Yeah. So those are, those are the books that I've got on my book on my my table at home. Okay. And as we close, can you share mm -hmm. one thing that um, you are the most excited about? Anything? Anything. Something I am most excited about. Whew. 
I mean, there's so many things I'm excited about. It's hard to, to narrow it down to one. I, I frankly, I, you know, I mentioned the 927 project on the north side that we're redeveloping with um, these two other. In 927 West Broadway. It's 927 West Broadway <laughs> yep. in the corner of DuPont and West Broadway. Yep. It's an old 120-year-old Oddfellows type building. Is it is it deemed historical? Not yet. We're working on that. Okay. Yeah, we met with historic folks last week, and it's a it's a climb. It's going to be a climb to get there, but we might get there. We'll see. Um, but I really feel like if we can get that project done and make it work financially, it'll it'll set an example for how other kinds of developments could could um, take place on the north side as well that are driven by the community, owned by the community, not by outside folks. Mm -hmm. But it's a model that's going to take a lot of work and a lot of creativity. Yeah. So if we can get it done, I'm excited. It's it's some in some respects similar to the North Market. Yeah, it is. Model. Yeah. It yeah. takes a lot of work. It's painful. It's like nothing I've ever done in my life and nothing I've really want to do again. Mm -hmm. But I think it could be catalytic. Yeah, and they're similar in, in intention, right? But the, I think we were very much in the same um, spirit of saying, let's show community what excellence can look like mm -hmm. and what true engagement looks like. Right. That yeah. we haven't come in with a project that's already baked right. and done, exactly. and we're engaging you exactly. to see how exactly. much you're going to resist it, exactly. but we're actually coming to you to help us create it. Exactly. And so, thank you for being a creative partner to well, uh, the city. And and the 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 thing, what's been really great about it for me, and I think for the foundation beyond what I think the project will be, is the learning that's coming out of it. So not just the example or the 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 um, sort of prototype that this could be for other developments. But whenever I've had um, organizations trying to raise money talk to me about the system and how it works, I've always been like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Well, now I know. Like, I know how screwed up these systems are that, that, that are trying to get these kind of projects done. Um, you know, the city RFP process is a problem. It's a huge problem. You know, trying the to... The permitting process. The permitting process. The, 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 right. Well, and then the... The, um, the financing stack, like how do you put financing together and what financing makes sense, especially in, a, in a, an area that's been disinvested and, you know, a building that takes $7 million to develop that's worth $2 million when it's done. I mean, how do you, how do you make those kind of things happen? And so just that whole, it's been really enlightening for me to experience that and to see the systemic barriers that are in place firsthand. Are you um, documenting them so then we can read about it in your book? I'm writing a book? Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, yes. The answer to that question, yeah. Awesome. Yes. Yeah, I'm trying to pay attention to those. Good deal. Thank you. You've just heard a conversation with Shonda, with Patrick Tosca from the J and... J and Rose <laughs> Phillips Family Foundation of Minnesota. Nobody gets it Thank right. Thank you, because I always call it the Phillips Family Foundation. <laughs> Everyone so does. We I have to agree. get that right. I'll get it right. That's okay. All right. Thank you, sir. Please check out the Minneapolis Foundation website to find more episodes of this podcast, information on upcoming events, and for my book recommendations. Thank you to Weber Shadwick for their partnership and support in making this podcast come alive.